0: Morning, everyone. Welcome back to Free Grace Baptist Church. Good to see Isaac back. Hope you still remember English. Not all Spanish. <laughs> A few announcements before we get started, and the, the top one on the list is that Becca Abby is expecting. Glorious news. We rejoice with Shane and Becca. Keep them in our prayers. Um, this evening service, of course, at 5 p.m., and Wednesday at Bible study takes place again at 7.30. Coming up on Saturday, the 24th of February, is our annual general meeting here at the church. Happens once a year if you're a member or an adherent. If you come regularly, you're welcome to attend. That is at 7 p.m. on the 24th of February. Uh, the, the letters and financial statements are being passed out already, so if you're a member and you haven't yet received financial statements, see Steve Lawson or, or Doug Lutane, Afterwards. That's it for announcements. Uh, Please turn in your Bible to Psalm 41 for our call to worship. Psalm 41. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Blessed is he who considers the poor, the Lord will deliver him in time of trouble, the Lord will preserve him and keep him alive and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. I said, Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself when he goes out he tells it all who hate me whisper together against me against me they devise my hurt an evil disease they say clings to him and now that he lies down he will rise up no more even my own familiar friend in whom i trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me but you O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that i may repay them by this i know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me as for you you uphold me in my integrity and set before your set me before your face forever blessed be the lord god of israel from everlasting to everlasting amen and amen for our first hymn this morning we'll turn to psalm 148 in the psalter 148b as in bravo And please stand with me as we sing hallelujah, praise Jehovah. seated. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of gladness and rejoicing when we can come into your house as your people to worship you. We thank you for this privilege that you have afforded us, not only that we get to come here, but that you have put it in our hearts to come here because we know that in ourselves and before Before you moved upon our hearts, we had no desire to be in your presence or to meet with your people. But in your gracious kindness, you have drawn us, you have wooed us, and you have brought us into this place. And We thank you for that mercy and that privilege that you have extended. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you for what Christ did on the cross in securing our salvation, in securing for us pardon, wiping away our guilt, and taking away our sins. And Lord, we pray for any here this morning that have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good. May this be the day of salvation for them, O God, as well. Lord, we pray that you would be present in our midst and that the Holy Spirit would attend the preaching of the word this morning. We pray, O Lord, in particular for our young people and for the children in this congregation, that you would move upon their hearts, Lord, that they would not only hear the gospel week in and week out and and not let it just run over them, but I pray, O oh God, it would sink into their hearts and that they would taste and see that the Lord is indeed good. And Lord, I pray that they would see, even from a young age, their need of Christ and their need of a salvation. Lord, we pray that you would add to our numbers, not for the sake of this, this congregation alone, but for the sake of the kingdom of God. We pray, O oh Father, that your kingdom would march forward. We thank you that you are doing a good work all over the face of this earth. We thank you that you are drawing people from every language, every people group, every nation, every tribe to yourself. And Lord, we pray that that work would continue. We pray in particular for tribes and peoples that have not yet heard the gospel, that have not yet had the scriptures uh, translated into their own languages. We pray, O God, that they too would be reached. We pray that there would be a new impetus and a new wave of of missionaries sent forth, Lord, as you have done in the past, we pray that you would do again in the future. Lord, we pray for those nations that have been reached with the gospel, but many that are, are slipping away into secular humanism and, and various other uh, religious beliefs that are contrary to the gospel, we pray, O oh God, that you would move once again in our own nation and in United States of America and Europe. Lord, we pray that we would see a new revival in your church and an awakening on the streets. We thank you for what you are doing and we pray, O oh God, that you would continue that good work. Lord, we pray for our brethren in the Far East, especially in countries where there is active persecution against your people. We pray for the church in Myanmar. We pray for the church in China, in North Korea, in Muslim Indonesia. Lord, we pray that you would be gracious to your people wherever they are. Uh, persecuted for your name's sake. We pray that you would continue to uphold them and give them strength to continue on and even to preach the gospel under difficult circumstances. Lord, be merciful to your church this day, the world over. And Lord, we pray for the church of Jesus Christ here in this city, not only our own congregation, but for every church here where the gospel is being preached this day. We pray, O God, that you would bless the ministers of the gospel here and cause your word to go forth and be a a light to the the Gentiles, to the heathen. Lord, I pray that you would preserve this city, this province, and this nation. We pray for other churches that are like-minded, for our sister churches, and for churches that we know of that are uh, Reformed Baptists. Lord, we pray that you would bless them. Pray you'd work in the church in Surrey today, and in Armstrong, and Dryden, Ontario. We pray for this congregation in Medicine Hat. Lord, we pray as well that this conference coming up would be a tremendous blessing in drawing us together and causing your people to be united. And we pray, God, that you would do us good for your own namesake. Be with us and continue with us this day. I pray, Lord, that you'd cleanse us from all sin and unrighteousness. And, Lord, I pray that our worship would be fitting in your sight because you are worthy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn now in our Psalter again to Psalm 84A, A as in alpha, 84A. And stand with me, we'll be singing it to a different tune, but one that is familiar to all of us. May be seated. Please take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew for our morning scripture reading. Matthew, we're now in chapter 19, and we will read the first half of the chapter up until verse 15. Matthew 19, beginning in verse 1 and reading through verse 15. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from the mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that Christ answered his detractors with such wisdom from the scriptures. Lord, they were accustomed to twisting the scriptures to fit their own designs. And Lord, we pray that you'd be gracious to us and help us to read your word with understanding. And may the Spirit of God illuminate our hearts that we might not read into it things that are not there. Be gracious to us as we continue in worship. We pray, O God that you would anoint Pastor Butler as he comes to preach to us. We pray that you would give him fluency and, and the ability to preach clearly the gospel to us, and we pray that we would be open to receive, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For our final hymn, we'll turn to 213 in the hymnals, two one three, <clears throat> and please stand with me as we sing again.
1: You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John as we work our way through John's gospel. We're in chapter 13, specifically this morning our focus will be verses 18 to 30. I do want to read beginning in verse 1 to verse 30 to remind us what's going on here in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. So John 13 beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes to pass, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was, leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then, leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he, had, he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the house of God and for the people of God and the great privileges that is ours to gather in your name. We ask now that you would guide us by the Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to reflect upon this passage of Scripture, cause us to stand again amazed at what the Savior went through on on behalf of us. We thank you for that life, that death, that resurrection. We praise you for his current session, and we look forward to his return again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Forgive us now for all sin and unrighteousness. May you open dead hearts to receive the truth as it is in Jesus. May sinners see themselves before a holy God in desperate need of forgiveness and a righteousness that avails with God. And may they hear that that comes through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And may you be glorified in this. And we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we have come to this upper room discourse, we notice that Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He is preparing them for ministry. Once he ascends, or is raised from the dead, ascends on high and goes back into heaven. They're gonna be the men that are tasked with going out, making disciples, planting churches, and extending the kingdom of God most high on earth. And we know that what motivates our Lord Jesus in terms of this discourse is his love for them, his authority over them, then his mission in terms of their salvation and the salvation of those who will hear and believe the gospel. So in the first section, in verses 4 to 17, we see, his, we see that he washes their feet, and that washing is physical. He washes their feet, and by doing so, sets an example for them on how they're to engage in service and love and charity to others. But there's also a symbolic reference. What he's doing here sort of typifies what he's going to do on the cross. His passion, his service for men, his giving up himself ultimately for the salvation of sinners. So in 4 to 17, he cleanses their feet. Now in our passage from verses 18 to 30, he cleanses the disciple group itself. In other words, he removes the betrayer. He removes the traitor. He removes the one that is not like the others. He is not saved. He is not a true believer. And so Jesus, before he gets down to intimate truth with his disciples, gets rid of Judas Iscariot. So I want to look at, first of all, the announcement of the betrayal in verses 18 to 20. And then secondly, the identification of the betrayer in verses 21 to 30. And as we look at the announcement of the betrayal, there's actually three things here that does deserve our attention. First, the fulfillment of Scripture. Secondly, the divinity of Christ. And then thirdly, the nature of discipleship. But notice first the fulfillment of Scripture in verse 18. He says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled. And then he invokes Psalm 41, specifically at verse 9. But notice, he says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. There's this two types of choosing that we find with reference to the apostles. There's a choosing unto apostolic ministry. Judas certainly had that. We see in Matthew chapter 10, for instance, when the 12 are selected, Jesus was over that. He says this and refers to this oftentimes. But here specifically he's talking about a a choosing unto salvation. The, the, The elect according to the sovereignty of God most high. Jesus understands the regenerate, nature of the true disciples. Go back to verse 10. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. He knows that 11 of them are regenerate, but he also knows that this one Judas is a reprobate. He is not heaven-bound. He is not the genuine article. And again, I think Judas stands in the pages of Scripture to cause us to reflect upon this. Just having office in the church does not secure grace in the heart. It doesn't demonstrate necessarily that there is grace in the heart. The time of the 18th century, for instance, what was very much important and needed was a converted ministry. People would go into the gospel ministry just like you'd go into being a lawyer or just as you'd go into being a teacher, or just as you'd go into being a doctor. It was just another profession that that offered a comfortable uh, sustenance, and it was another job like all the others. Well, what would happen if you had a thoroughly unconverted ministry? There's no emphasis or exhortation on the truth of the gospel. I mean, they may go through the motions, they may go through the the actual charade, but they're not pressing the consciences of men with the, the glory of Christ Most High. And so when it comes to that reality, just because a man preaches every week, doesn't necessarily mean he's having bound. And Judas, no doubt, understood something of the success of gospel ministry. You have that occasion in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 10. The disciples are sent out to minister. They're sent to cast out demons. They're sent to preach in, in the name of the Lord Jesus and to heal people. And of course, they come back and they, they marvel at the fact that, that the Lord God had blessed that ministry. Well, Judas was one of them. So Judas stands in the pages of Holy Scripture to testify that they were not all of us, for if they had been of us, they would not have gone out from us. Judas was an apostate. Judas was a reprobate. Jesus understood that, and now Jesus is going to disclose that particular truth. He affirms the disciples' regeneration. He affirms as well Judas's reprobation. And then notice specifically the prophecy of his betrayal in Psalm 41. He says, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. We need to understand, Judas doesn't betray Jesus so that the scripture can be fulfilled. Rather, the scripture predictively prophesied that these things would in fact occur in the life of the Messiah. So it's not that Judas is raised up only to fulfill Scripture. It is rather that Scripture in the Old Covenant points forward to what is going to happen in the plan and purpose of God Most High. In fact, in a parallel passage in Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, And truly the Son of Man goes as has been determined. So this stuff that we see, the passion of our Lord Jesus, isn't sort of an afterthought It's not a plan B, it's not, you know, well, let's try to make the best thing out of this that we can make. No, this was all purposed and planned by God Most High. On that day of Pentecost, Peter says that Jesus was crucified according to the predetermined plan and purpose of God. There's nothing that takes God by surprise. The Lord Jesus Christ was a man with a particular mission. He understood that mission and he's going to execute that mission. And according to his humanity, he would have read Psalms like Psalm 41 to see what was in fact going to happen in terms of his suffering, in terms of his death. There would be an external threat. The devil enters into Judas, but there's this internal threat as well, Judas Iscariot. When you look back in the Old Testament, Israel had to contend not only with the Philistines, but with a Manasseh. Not only with uh, the Canaanites, but they had to deal with apostasy in their midst, in their ranks and files. And so John is showing us that. With reference to the enemies of our Lord, they are one, cosmological, the devil himself, but then two, historical, the person of Judas Iscariot. He would eat with Christ. He would maintain that intimacy with Christ. And all the while, as we read here, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And that's a a symbolic statement that you find in scripture that shows not only domination, but it shows victory and triumph. It shows an attempt on the part of the one raising the heel to smash the face of the other. It's interesting, though, because when Judas does this, it provides the occasion for Jesus to do it likewise, but to do it to the devil specifically in accordance with Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." So the occasion of the betrayer lifting his heel against our Lord Jesus provided the, the, the context or arena such that our Lord Jesus would smash the devil himself through his crosswork and through his resurrection. So with reference to this prophecy, Jesus knows that it's written. Jesus understands that what's happening has been determined. But then notice as well his divinity. On the heels of this invocation of Psalm 41, look at what he says in verse 19. Now, I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. Predictive prophecy in the Old Testament functioned in a couple of ways. First, it confirmed or validated a prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, God says to the children of Israel, you're not like the heathen. You're not like the pagans, you're not supposed to have witches, you're not supposed to have soothsayers, you're not supposed to have necromancers, you're not supposed to engage in those dark black occultic arts, rather what you have in Israel is the priest who on behalf of the people goes to God, and then you have the prophet who from God comes to the people and speaks the truth. Well, with reference to that, how do we identify who a true prophet is? Well, if he speaks the word and it doesn't come to pass, then he's not a true prophet. He is not to be afraid, you're not to be afraid of him. In other contexts, you're supposed to execute the false prophet. I think that would go a long way to sort of mitigating the prophecies that we've seen in our own generation about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to very much be quiet when it comes to certain mysteries relative to the things of God. But in terms of predictive prophecy, it affirmed the authority of the prophet. But then as well, it affirmed the authority of Yahweh of Israel. Turn back to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, specifically chapter 48, a context where God is, through the prophet, condemning idolatry. One of the problems that Israel often engaged in was idolatry, having other gods before or besides Yahweh, the true and living God. What was one of the ways that Yahweh distinguished himself from the idols? Well, he had the ability to speak. They didn't. He had the ability to hear. They didn't. He had the ability to predict what was going to happen, and they certainly did not. So notice in 48 at verse 3, I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass because I knew that you were obstinate and your neck was an iron sinew and your brow uh, bronze. Even from the beginning, I have declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. See what he says? I have told you what I'm going to do, so that when it comes to fruition, you don't give the credit to Baal. You don't give the credit to Asherah. You don't give the credit to the government. Rather, you understand that the Yahweh who spoke it is the God who is able to execute it. In fact, turn back to chapter 46. Not the same emphasis, but a very uh, a similar sort of a thing. Notice in 46.8, Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Well, what distinguishes him from the others? What differentiates the true and living God from the fake, from the dunghill deity? What distinguishes Yahweh from Baal, from Asherah, from from Moloch? Well, here it is, verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. So going back to John's gospel in chapter 13 at verse 19, do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus says very specifically, now I tell you, before it comes, you're not going to be caught off guard, you're not going to slap your forehead and say, wow, I can't believe somebody actually sold the Savior out for 30 pieces of silver. You're not going to be able to do that because I've told you what's going to happen. In fact, he's going to disclose it further in the remainder of our passage this morning. But he says, now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. And not just some sort of vague, undefined belief. just want you to believe. But that you may believe that I am. Now what's behind this statement is Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. The great I am passage. When Moses asks God, who shall I say is sending me to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. It's the, 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 the name of God that reflects something of the perfection of God vis-a-vis his eternality. God is. There's never a time when he wasn't. And there never will be a time when he will not be. He's always been. He's pure act. There's no movement in God. There's no potential in God. You say that to your children sometimes. You've you've got great potential, son. Perhaps someday you'll be the president. Nobody can say that to God. There's no potential in God. He's pure act. And this word or this phrase, I am, points to that. It underscores the glory, the majesty, the distinctiveness of the true and living God versus the idols around Israel, versus the idols around the church, versus the idols of our own hearts, versus the idols that constantly stand in competition with the true and living God. What distinguishes him? He is. Notice in Genesis 1, it doesn't argue for the existence of God. It simply assumes it. In the beginning, God. That's how the Bible begins. Not, I am Moses, I'm the prophet of God, and I'm going to give you 15 good reasons why you ought to believe in God. I'm not decrying proofs for the existence of God, I'm not suggesting that's a bad exercise. Not at all. Paul does that in Romans chapter 1. He says that the creature leads us to the creator. The the effects of the creator causes us to marvel and to understand specifically his his eternal power and his his Godhead and his glory. But the beginning of Genesis 1 just starts with God. And that's what I think Exodus 3.14 is pointing to. Eternality, pure act, glory, majesty, distinction from all others. He is creator, creator, we are creature. It's not like God is just a better version of man. It's not like you've got man and then angel and then God sort of at the top of that. No, God is creator. Everything else is creature. We have far more in common with the worm at the level of essence than we do with God Almighty. There is a creator-creature distinction and uh, Exodus 3.14 points to that. So back to our text. Now, I tell you predictive prophecy before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. You'll remember that in John's gospel, we have several places where Jesus uses this phrase, I am, with a predicate. Predicate simply means something you say about a subject. And there are seven of them in John's gospel. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus is the door of the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is the true vine. So seven times in John's gospel, he gives us this I am with a predicate. I am the bread of life. But there are several times in John's gospel where he uses this language, I am, with no predicate. Again, I think we need to hear Exodus 3.14 in the background there, such that when Jesus says, I am, what's he doing? He's asserting his equality with the Father. He is of one being with the Father. He is of the same nature as the Father. Remember in the prologue, we learn he's not the son by creation. He's not the son by adoption, but he's the son by eternal generation. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, being in one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. So that's his point here. I give you this predictive prophecy concerning the betrayer so that when you see the betrayal happen, yeah, you're going to be sad, obviously. You don't want to see your, your, your friend and your master and your Lord and the one that you love betrayed into the hands of filthy, wretched sinners that they're going to crucify, who are going to crucify him. But you'll also remember that I told you this. And as it was supposed to function in the days of the prophet Isaiah to affirm and confirm the validity of the one speaking it, so it is true here. Let's look at some of those other I am statements in John's Gospel just to see how Jesus does, in fact, assert his equality with the Father. Look at John 4, specifically at verse 25. John 4, verse 25, Jesus has been discussing things with the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, She has come to the point where she realizes he ain't like other men. He ain't like anyone else I've ever heard. When she goes back to her village, she says, come and meet a man that told me all things that I ever did. I mean, we don't meet those kind of people, do we? (laughs) Hey, I met a guy at Walmart, and he told me all the things that I ever did. That that just doesn't happen. I, I met a guy at, you know, Bruce's, and he was sitting at the table next to us, and he told me all things that I ever did. That doesn't happen. Who could tell her all things that she ever did? God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Notice in 425, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am. Now the he there is supplied, and it's not bad, because we don't usually stop a sentence with I am. So the uh, he supplied there is legit, it's not bad, it's not wicked. But again, what's behind there is God's declaration to Moses at the burning bush. Look at chapter 6, chapter 6 specifically. Uh, uh, chapter 6 specifically at verse 15. Well, well, we'll drop down. Jesus is walking on the sea. Pick up at verse 19. So when they had rode uh, about three... Rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. Again, that's common. If I was chilling at Cultus Lake and I saw somebody just walking along the lake, not the shoreline, but on the water, and they didn't have a visible paddle board, they didn't have some sort of mechanism by which to fake it, I'd be afraid too. You know, when Jesus does things in the gospel records like stopping the wind and the waves and it says the disciples are afraid, you should go, I wonder why they're afraid. Well, because they're standing with a man who can talk to the wind and waves and make them stop blowing. I would suggest that would be a fearful encounter for us if we happen to confront such a, such a fellow in our daily goings, goings on. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Literally, he says, I am. Now, when you look at the backdrop in terms of the old covenant and the Psalter, for instance, the book of Job, you see that Yahweh treads the waves. You see that Yahweh walks on the water. So that these men, when they see this and they're filled with fear, and Jesus says, I am, again, brethren, he is making a very specific declaration concerning his nature, concerning the reality that would be later confessed by the Nicene Creed, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Look at chapter 8, specifically at verse 18. Chapter 8. Verse 18, I am one who bears witness of myself. Actually, that's not it. Uh, oh yeah, I am one. That, uh, same, same thing, it's ego ami. I am one who bears witness of myself and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And then look at 24, specifically there in chapter 8. Well, look at verse 23. You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. For if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. See, there's a bit of triage or hierarchy when it comes to Christian doctrine. Brethren, it's good that people understand the last things. It's good that people understand the Lord's Supper. It's good that people understand baptism. It's good that people understand Baptist ecclesiology, Presbyterian ecclesiology, Dutch Reformed ecclesiology. All those are good things, but all those things can be disagreed upon and one can still find themselves in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But you know what you can't get wrong? You can't get wrong God. You can't get wrong the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't get wrong Christology unless you believe that I am, what will happen? You will die in your sins. So with that in mind, what ought to be the focus in gospel preaching? Gospel preaching. What ought to be the focus in terms of our evangelism? Are we out there to make more Baptists? I mean, if God happens to make them Baptists, we'll take it, but the primary emphasis is to call them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to see him as altogether lovely, to see him as chief among 10,000, to see him as one in whom you too can have a part. Remember he says that to Simon Peter, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. And then we have this scene that we're examining this morning. Where's John? John, the beloved disciple, they would recline when they were at table. They wouldn't have some sort of a chair like we had and and a table set up the way we did. It was more of a reclining situation where there was some intimacy and closeness. The right hand would be available to take the food, but there would be an intimacy involved. Where do we see John? He's right close to the Savior King. Where do we see Judas? He's right close to the Savior King. The fact that Jesus dips the bread and is able to hand it to Judas indicates that he's got some close degree of proximity. Jesus didn't have to throw it across the room there. You see, this Jesus is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, the one in whom there is forgiveness, the one in whom there is a righteousness, the one in whom there is salvation. This is why the apostles in the book of Acts go everywhere proclaiming him. They're not out there to make Baptists and Presbyterians and Dutch reform. They're out there to call sinners, needy, desperate, hell-bound sinners to close with Christ, to believe on Christ, to be saved by Christ, to be washed in his precious blood and clothed in his impeccable righteousness such that they can one day stand before thrice holy God. See, Jesus is the great I am. And he indicates this over and over and over again. Look at verse 28. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. See, on the one hand, when he's lifted up on that cross, there's going to be a a whole host of emotion. The disciples are going to be hurt. The women attending him at the cross are going to be hurt. Watching your friend crucified is probably no fun thing. But as well, just like the invocation of Psalm 41, just like his emphasis, I've told you this so that when it happens you may come to believe that I am, guess what else would transpire at the cross? Persons would say, like the centurion does, truly this is the Son of God. Notice as well, chapter 8 at verse 58, and believe you me, the Jews knew precisely what he was doing. Verse 57, then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Why did they pick up stones to throw at him? Because he being a man made himself equal with God. Because he being a man made himself equal with the I am. They couldn't handle that, brethren, as far as their law was concerned. This man was a blasphemer and this man deserved to die. 13, 19, same sort of an emphasis that we're looking at, but then one other I am passage that we should look at in chapter 18. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a beautiful scene not in terms of the rest and the wretchedness and the wickedness and the lawlessness, but the revelation of the I am-ness of the Son of God. Notice specifically at chapter 18, verse 5. They answered him, well, verse 4, whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Huh, that's an interesting statement. They drew back and fell to the ground. Were these all converted Christians that had gone to Sunday school, that had learned the Nicene Creed, that had understood Chalcedon, that knew that he was God from God? What? no. But when he reveals to them his identity as the great I am, they draw back and they fall down. Why? Because they're, they're in terror. This is what happens when you come into the presence of God most high. Remember those men of Beth Shemesh that, that, that just wanted to peer into the Ark of the Covenant? How'd that go, men? How, how did that work out for you? There is a holiness and a majesty and a glory about our God and at times throughout the gospel narratives, we see it in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and these Roman soldiers saw it in the revelation of the fact that he was indeed I am and they draw back and they fall to the ground. So back to John 13, Jesus wants them to understand who he is. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am. And then notice the nature of discipleship. I think he speaks verse 20, one, to encourage the disciples, and two, to highlight condemnation for Judas. So notice the encouragement for the disciples in verse 20. I mean, how would you think? You're you're the 11, and Jesus says, okay, one of you, or no, you're the 12, and one of you in the midst of the 12, is going to betray me. Honestly, brethren, I would think that's not good. <laughs> He's collected this band of merry men to, to go out with his message, to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth, to, to canvass the world, to call every tribe and tongue and people and nation to Israel's God through the Messiah. And, and in our midst, one out of 12, there, there's a traitor, there's a betrayer, how are we going to do this? This is going to be tough. I mean, we're not talking about teams. We're not talking about thousands and, and millions. This is a real Gideon moment. Remember when Gideon is facing the Midianites, and what does God say? you got too many troops. You've got, you got to get rid of those soldiers. Again, brethren, we read that. We know the outcome. But if you're one of those troops, aren't you kind of wondering, hey, wait a minute. Shouldn't we have more people to meet the enemy? <laughs> Shouldn't we take more guns? Shouldn't we have more ammunition? Now, now, God's saying, you know, get rid of it. Whittle it down. Get to the bare bones. In fact, just grab 300. 300? We, we've got scads of men here. We, we could certainly clean house. What does Yahweh demonstrate? He doesn't need the numbers. He doesn't need our agency. He doesn't need our mediation. He is God most high. And so in this disciple group, as you're looking about you and you're wondering which one is it, you you might be a little bit shaken. So what does Jesus do? He wants to comfort them. He wants to encourage them. He wants to let them know that once he whittles away this dead branch, the, the same parameters are in play, the same truths obtained, the same reality is theirs. And he uses something he uses in the missionary discourse in Matthew's gospel in chapter 10 at verse 40. Notice what he says here in verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. Just like in Matthew's gospel. It's a beautiful statement. In other words, disciples, you're not going on your own. You're not going in your own power and in your own strength. You're not going in your own authority. You're rather delegates, you're ambassadors, you're you're the kerukes, the preacher, you're the one sent by the king for the particular task at hand. And when you go and when you function appropriately and accordingly, you've got the authority of the king behind you. You have the authority of Christ himself. If they receive you, they receive me, he says. What do you think that does to the eleven? Again, they're probably still, you know, I'm not too sure about everything here, but, but I like that. I like that concept. I, I like that reality. I like that his authority backs us. This is how he ends the, the gospel narrative in Matthew, two, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptize those disciples that you made in all the nations, and then in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and what? Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. You're not going about this on your own. Isn't this what God does with Joshua? Go into the land, Joshua. Vanquish the Canaanites, Joshua. Dispossess the land. you're not going alone. You're not going to be by yourself. You're not going it solo. God promises his presence to Joshua in that campaign against the Canaanites. Well, so does Jesus in our present campaign against the spiritual Canaanites that need to be vanquished from the land. We do that through the proclamation of the gospel and the hope that they'll be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. Joshua went in and broke heads. Joshua went in and cut throats. Joshua went in and did things that is not our prerogative to do in this new covenant era. We follow Jesus, our Joshua, and he calls us to make disciples, to baptize those disciples, to trust in his presence and power. As church, now there might be that for some other agency, but as church, we don't wield the sword We rather preach the word. And we pray for the salvation of sinners and for the advancement of the cause of Jesus. So he encourages them. Most assuredly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you, amen, amen, I say to you. He who receives, whomever I send receives me. And then notice the condemnation for Judas. Judas is still present. Judas is here. Not here, but there. What do you think this is going to do? And he who receives me receives him who sent me. What's the flip side? He who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. We see that in John five. You honor the son just as you honor the father. You see it in John eight as well, that if there's love for, adoration to, and, and, and ownership of the father, then you have the son. But to deny the son is a rejection of the father. So perhaps here he's speaking specifically Again, to encourage them, you've got me, you've got the Father, but to condemn the betrayer in their midst. You really need to think about what you're doing here, pal. You really need to think about selling your soul for 30 pieces of silver. You need to think about the fact that you are rejecting the God of heaven and earth for 30 pieces of silver? You know, we look at that and we say, what chump change? Why would he do that? I mean, here he is right in the disciple group. Why, why is that? Well, really? Is that a question that you have? Because people are doing it all the time around us. You might be doing it. May not be 30 pieces of silver, but it may be a particular sin. May not be 30 pieces of silver, but it may be, you know, several hundred million dollars might be some drugs, it might be some, you know, relationships or illicit relationships. Why would we go away from our blessed God to chase that which is not God? That's the perennial issue, isn't it? That's what the Son of Man came to address. We're sinners, we're messed up, we're as bad as you can possibly get. We are defiled, we are unholy. You set before us the glory of heaven and the pains of hell, guess where we default every single time unless God intervenes? Always hell. We'll always choose that which is contrary to our blessed God and Savior. So when we look at Judas here, we ought to take a little bit of look at ourselves. Well, what am I foregoing or what am I taking or pursuing Instead of Jesus. What what is that fruit? What is that benefit? What is that piece of joy that I'm cleaving to or clinging to instead of coming to the Savior? Instead of believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We already know that Judas is a traitor. We, he's been announced in 6, 70, and 71. We see that that, that in John chapter 12 at, at the supper, a couple days before the Passover. He's already, you know, niggling about money. He's like, well, well, you know, what are we going to do with that money? We, we, we should make sure we have all that money. We should, we should want to make sure that we don't waste it on lavishes, lavish expenses like, like the Savior and his glory. I mean, again, who does that, right? <laughs> Could you imagine being that guy in the group? You're with the master. Somebody lavishes glory upon him, and you're the one who complains, Not because you're fastidiously committed to making sure the accounting is upright and every penny is accounted for. No, because you're a thief and you want to steal what has been given to the service of the master. The guy's a wretch. He's a bad guy. When it says that Satan entered him, I don't think we interpret that like the demon possessions we see elsewhere in scripture. You remember the, the one who the boy was thrown on the ground and he went into violent convulsions Or you've got the demoniac legion by the tombs. I don't think that's what's going on. We've already got uh, the devil plying him, setting before him this this allure of money, this allure of stuff. He's already on this path. He's already got a predilection to a a traitorous spirit. So the devil enters him. It simply confirms where he would already been heading. And that brings us to consider that. The identification of the, brethren, uh, of the betrayer, specifically in verses 21 to 30. We'll keep this short so that we don't keep you long. Notice first the declaration. In verse 21, when Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit. Why? Because he had just said these things. <laughs> we see a troubled spirit at the graveside of Lazarus, in John chapter 11. Do you know what this shows us? True humanity. Just as he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, so he is man from man, true man from true man. What is true of humanity, accepting sin, is true of our blessed Savior. In fact, Cyril makes the observation, after eating his bread, he lifted his heel against him. He esteemed not honor, not glory, not the law of love, not the reverence owed to Christ as God, nor anything else having to do with him. Instead, he was focused only on the defiled denarii of the Jews. He sold his own soul for just a few pieces of silver, and he handed over innocent and righteous blood to the hands of polluted murderers. The reason for Jesus being troubled, then, makes perfect sense. Jesus announces this. Jesus again, true God from true God, but true man. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's sweating great drops of blood and he prays to the Father, if it is possible, let this this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's true humanity, brethren. This is true humanity to see a, a troubled spirit in the context of betrayal and a traitor, right? If you knew that somebody was gossiping about you behind your back, You knew that a friend, somebody that you ate bread with, was was running you down? How would you feel? Oh, that's great. No, you'd be troubled in spirit. You've got intimacy with this person, as Jesus and Judas had. You've got intimacy to the point where you're eating together. Intimacy such that you can dip a piece of bread and hand it to him. And he's going to lift up the heel against you of course it's going to promote a troubled spirit in the heart of true humanity. And that is precisely what we see here. So notice what he says after this statement that he's troubled. Verse 21, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Now on the heels of this, there's a degree of confusion on the part of the disciples. We see that in verses 22 to 25. Note their confusion, first of all, in verse 22. I think this speaks to three things. Notice in verse 22, then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. What does that indicate? I think it indicates that Judas was pretty good at hiding his wickedness, right? I think it also indicates that they were pretty charitable. Well, we knew it was Judas. (laughs) We knew it was that guy. We always suspected him. And the parallel in Matthew's gospel, what does it say? When Jesus says, one of you will betray me. You know what they say? Is it Judas? No. They say, is it I? Is it it me, Lord? They understood what the hymn writer would later capture. We're prone to wander, prone to leave the God that we love. There's always that suspiciousness we maintain about our own hearts, isn't there? We're not too sure about all the goings on in there. I mean, for the most part, we're happy, we have Jesus, we have his blood, we have his righteousness, but man, once in a while, you pull back a little bit of that heart, and you go, ugh, I I kinda wish that wasn't still there. It's gross and disgusting. So in that context, when he says, one of you will betray me, is it I? So, So Judas could fake it pretty well. They were pretty charitable, but Jesus didn't treat him any differently. Jesus didn't say, you're the pariah. You, you sit out there with the coats. You, you make sure nobody you know, comes in with guns. You, you just you know, secure the perimeter. I think that's kind of owing to their confusion. That, really? So, someone's going to betray you? Like, who, Who's going to do that? Like, What manner of man does so, so, something like that? Where's the suspiciousness on the part of him? Notice as well, their question. So this sort of statement between 23 to 25, uh, John is right there. And, And later John will identify John. John is the beloved disciple who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the epistles of John and he wrote the book of Revelation. And on several occasions, he describes himself as being the beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. Now according to his divinity, Jesus doesn't love one more than the other. That, that would be impossible. Every object of God's love is most loved. There's no increase. There's no diminishment. That's what we celebrate in the doctrine of divine impassibility. But according to his humanity, he had an affinity for John. He really loved him. That, that's okay. That's all right. You, you don't, and I don't, have to be everybody's BFF. There's a doctrine of friendship. When when Jesus went into key situations, he took Peter, James, and John. I I hope the other guys weren't there. That's not fair, he never takes us. That's our kind of inclination, isn't it? Isn't that sad, pathetic? Oh, I don't want to not be the bestest friend. Why not? Aren't you happy that that people have found somebody that they want to share their life with? That's okay. There's a doctrine of friendship in the Bible and, and that John is able to refer to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. I don't think it's arrogance on his part. He's not saying, I'm, you know, I'm the mighty disciple that he loved more than anybody else. No, there was this affinity. There was this, this, this intimacy, this closeness that they shared. And that's okay, brethren. That, that's perfectly acceptable. That's not sin. I mean, Jesus is wholly harmless undefiled. He, he doesn't sin. So there is this sort of question. So Peter basically nods to John and says, find out who it is. And then the question is posed by John in verse 25. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, Lord, who is it? And then there's a verbal response to John. Now based on the rest of the context, I think it was a verbal response to John. It wasn't for all of them. Because it wouldn't make sense. Well, well, they knew. He dips the bread, he hands the bread. It's obviously the guy. There's a very specific emphasis on the intimacy involved here. John is leaning on the breast of Jesus. And as one commentator pointed out, we read that in the West and we kind of think, oh, that's kind of weird. But in the Middle East, there's a show of friendship that isn't weird between men. And doesn't underscore or doesn't reveal any sort of hidden things about them. No, it's just a different culture. And so there's this intimacy that it has obtained with John, the beloved disciple with Jesus. So when he answers him, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. The rest of the context would indicate that they didn't all hear this, that there's still some degree of confusion. But then he actually engages in the action, and notice in verse 26, and having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. That's interesting. So what we see in verse 2 is the plan. What we see here is the execution of the plan. And as I said, I don't think this is your garden variety demon possession where he's going to cast him down on the, on the ground, he's going to enter into convulsions, and Jesus is going to you know, whack the, the demons right out of him. He's confirmed in his godlessness. He's confirmed in his wickedness. As Poole says, So though the devil had formerly been moving Judas to this vile act and had his consent to it, yet after he had taken this mouthful, the devil plied him with stronger motions, impulses, and suggestions. And now he had mastered his conscience and hardened his heart. So as he was more prepared for the villainy about which he had some thoughts before. So it's just showing the deal is sealed at this point. And then when Jesus says what he does in verse 27, what you do, do quickly. That's interesting too, isn't it? Cyril of Alexandria suspects that Jesus is talking to the devil here. Satan entered him. So Cyril says, he's not talking to Judas at this point. He's talking to the devil. I don't know. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying it's an interesting take. I think Thomas has an interesting take that I think is a bit closer to it. He's giving permission. Remember John 10, 18, Jesus makes it very specific that no one takes his life from him. What's Jesus saying when he says, what you do, do quickly? He's showing his sovereignty. He's showing his control. He's showing his absoluteness. He's showing that he is, in fact, the I am. These are not affairs or events that are out of his control. These are not things that have sort of gotten away from him. And, and if we back up to chapter 12, and we, even in chapter 13, we, we read that the hour had arrived. Well, what happens during the hour? Well, what happens during the hour is that the devil is cast out of this world. What happens at the hour is that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So Jesus knows what's happening, Jesus understands that the arrival has come, Jesus tells him in terms of permission, go and do it, let's do this, because Jesus knows the outcome and what's going to happen consequent to his death and resurrection. I think the apostle captures something of this in Hebrews 12 too. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our our faith. Listen to what it says. Who for the joy that was set before him, the casting out of the devil, the drawing all men to himself, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I think that kind of gets at it, whether he's talking to the devil or not, I don't know. Not, again, not saying that's bad, but I think it's closer to the fact that Jesus is displaying in the midst of this, his hardship, his affliction, his turmoil, his trouble, his difficulty. He's in charge. He's in control. All these events are, are, are his to accomplish, And though the cross is there and the shame is there and the ignominy is there, on the other side, the salvation of the likes of you and I are there. So he endures that. He endures those things for the salvation of his people. Again, we've got misunderstanding, verse 28, no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him, but they speculated. Some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to them, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So there's still this confusion. But now notice, according to verse 30, having received the bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. See, Judas has now been cleansed from the disciple group. Their feet are clean, their their group is clean. So the upper room discourse now is the master to the servant with great intimacy, with great love, with great encouragement and with a great help to promote them in the task at hand, to go to make disciples, to baptize those disciples and then to teach those disciples. But just before we close, look at that. It was night. That's a historical detail to be sure, but doesn't John in his gospel give us a lot of parallel between light and dark? A lot of parallel between day and night with an ethical sort of a reference? Yeah, it's night when, when Judas goes out. That you know You could see that. It's, it's a historical fact, but there's some symbolism going on there. In fact, if you back up just a little bit in chapter 12, notice in verses 35 and 36. A little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Verse 44, he who believes in me, believes not in me, but in him him who sent me. And he who sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So there is this motif, light, good, dark, bad, day, good, night, bad. And so that he goes out at night, underscores the power of darkness behind him and this mission that he has uh, assumed from the devil having entered him to accomplish this wicked deed. Carson says, doubtless this is a historical reminiscence, but it is profound theology. Even though the paschal moon was shining at the full, Judas was swallowed up by the most awful darkness. Judas was heading to his own place. But in another way, it was also the nighttime for Jesus. It was the power, or the hour rather, of the power of darkness. Well, in conclusion, we learn a couple of things with reference to Judas and with reference to Jesus. Always better to focus on Jesus than a Judas, but Judas can be important and helpful for us in some other ways as well. Because being a fake, being a hypocrite, making a a profession, and then living like the devil, again, it's in us, brethren, is it I? It's certainly in us to be prone to wander and prone to leave the God that we love. It's certainly in us to stumble. It's certainly in us to fall. It's certainly in us to have to get up again, have to go back to our Savior, have to confess our sin, and, and plead the advocacy of Jesus Christ the righteous. It's there. I, I know it's there. Not because I see you guys, but I see this guy, and it's unfortunate, and it's perplexing. There's a big difference between remaining corruption, those, those, those struggles of the heart, the good that I want to do I don't do, and the evil I don't want to do I, I find myself doing, such that it brings you to that place with the apostle in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise God for our Lord Jesus. See, when we have that remaining corruption, it brings us back to the cross. It doesn't. God, through his grace and spirit, does. That, that's remaining sin. That's a reality. That wasn't Judas's problem. He didn't just need his feet cleansed each and every day. He needed to be born again. He needed to be regenerated. He needed to be saved. He needed the spirit of God. He needed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have that. He had the office of apostle, but he didn't have the grace of a disciple. And that man stands on these pages, wagging his dead, sinful, reprobate finger at all of us, causing us to reflect, why am I here? Am I only here because mom or dad makes me come? Am I only here because my husband or wife makes me come? Am I here in terms of a profession of faith because that's what everybody around me does? Or am I here because he's altogether lovely and chief among 10,000? Am I here because I I want a part in him? Or am I here because I want to lay my head on his breast and eat bread with Him. Am I here for the right reasons? I don't just mean church. I mean profession of faith, confessing our, our great and glorious doctrines. Again, Judas had that. Judas had success. Judas came back having seen the power of God at work, and yet Judas did not have the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a simple question today. Where are you? Is it remaining corruption that you're struggling with? Join the club. I, you know, how do I fix it, pastor? I don't know. When you do, come and teach me. Because it's this ongoing situation that you see spelled out in Romans 7 and Galatians 5. It's the reality. It's the fact that Simon Peter is gonna deny his blessed savior, not to the emperor of Rome, but to a servant girl. It's the the, the wretched reality that David, when, when kings go out to battle, stayed behind, sent out Joab, and then ended up committing adultery and murder. That's the reality of the Christian life. And I'm not not minimizing that, but I'm suggesting if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous. But if you've got reigning sin, you have no desire for Jesus, no faith in Jesus, no love for Jesus, what's the answer? The answer is to come to Jesus. Lord, to whom shall we go? You, You have the words of eternal life. He's able to heal the heart even of the, I don't necessarily want you sort of a sin. He's that glorious and that wondrous and that good. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. So learn from Judas, hypocrisy, bad. Learn from Jesus, there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. He is the great I am. He is the divine being. He is the one in whom there is forgiveness and a full-on righteousness that avails with his Father in heaven. Come to him in faith and you'll have everlasting life. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God and our Holy Father, we thank you. Though a very difficult passage on the one hand, as it represents our, our race, our humanity, our 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 personhood in a very negative light, but on the other hand, it shows the supremacy, the glory, and even the goodness of our Lord Jesus. Once he gets rid of the traitor, he deals very intimately and kindly with with his disciples. I pray, Father, that all over this earth today, as the gospel goes forth, you would be pleased to draw many out of darkness into marvelous light, confessing faith in Jesus our Lord. And we pray in his most blessed name, amen. Well, we'll stand and close our worship this morning by singing number 572, 572. Again, we'll stand as we sing. of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you, Father, for such a wonderful Savior. Thank you for the Son of your love, your only begotten Son. We thank you for his life, death, resurrection, and pray, God, that you would cause us to reflect on this each and every day and stand in light of Calvary's cross. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We may be seated for a brief time of meditation.